Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Okay, well, thank you very much. I've taken a little bit of a hiatus on the uh, on the podcasting because, uh, you know, just thinking about things and how I wanted it to progress. Um, I appreciate tremendously all of the ongoing support. And uh, we're switching the format a little bit. There will still be some interviews, um, but I'm also transitioning to providing some of my own content. So what you should hear for the next couple of podcast episodes would be more personal stuff, uh, a little bit more teaching, and hopefully different ways I can deliver value to you. As always, I really value your input And if possible, I would appreciate if you would reach out on any of the social channels uh, or just email me, rabbirupp at gmail.com or jrupp at h.edu and provide some suggestions for me of how I could better serve. And one of the things that I'm hoping you will see at this point is that we are extremely focused on living a better life. And one of the most important components of that is getting the direction and the one-on-one work that you need in order to live better. So I am a strong proponent of coaching. I do a lot of coaching myself, and I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, to please do what many other people have done. Reach out. Let's have a conversation. There's no obligation to you whatsoever uh, to see if we might be a good fit to work together. And if that might not be the case, I would be thrilled to introduce you to any of the multitude of options and networks and people that I know who could provide that help. So again, please reach out via social channels, whatever it might be. I don't think I'm too hard to find. Certainly not, I hope. And, uh, and, and let me know how I could be of benefit to you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you all very much for joining. Uh, we are now going to be discussing part two of how to lead an awesome Seder. Uh, let's, let's, get, let's get going. So one of the things that we spoke about last time, just to get us up to speed, was that the goal of the Seder, again, I just read yesterday, very exciting, all the Pesach program, not exciting, really getting us sad for a lot of people, that, uh, that the Pesach programs have all been canceled uh, and that we are all going to have to be home with our families, which is, for many people, a very unique opportunity and a unique challenge. Uh, three-day Yom Tov, no shul, sitting at home, okay, that is what it is. So the question really is, that we have to reframe what we're what we're doing. So it used to be that Pesach for a lot of people was, you know, cook really hard, work hard, have a thousand people over, kind of go through the seder, whatever. And this year we kind of have the opportunity that we can deeply engage. Could be just our spouse, could be just ourselves, could be a, you know the people that are within our household or our own children with the seder. So sort of the goal of what these classes were that I was going through was tips and trips, t- tips and tricks and um, foundations for discussion that we could deploy when we are sitting with our families. Um, So I got up to the last time basically setting up that much of the introduction to the Seder was setting the stage for the, the main part of telling over the story, which is these four paragraphs that take us from negativity to positivity. Uh, I believe officially where I ended was that there are two random paragraphs seemingly in the Haggadah, which is the story about Rav Elazar of Yeshua, but Rav Elazar ben Azariah and Rav Akiva and Rav Tarfon sitting in Bnei Brak, and they're talking all about it, and it's time for the, the morning Shema, and then the second piece where it talks about Rav Elazar ben Azariah says, I'm like a man of 70 years. Now, okay, so 
big picture, and again, there's two, there's two points when you're thinking about this. Point number one is, why is it there? Like, what is it teaching us? So easily we could say it's just giving us examples how even the greatest rabbis, the people that knew everything, they were all doing it for a very long time. They were talking about it for a long time. So it's not about amassing information, but rather how do you relive the experience in order to better bring it into your life? And seemingly the more Jewishly connected you are, the more relevant this message is because when you're living a Jewish life, you always have to live with these basic principles that God cares what you're doing and that your actions matter. So the more you live that, the more it's worthy and important you talk about it. Because again, like we see, you know, a person in this situation, let's say the coronavirus situation, could so easily break if you just flow in the media because it will drive you absolutely crazy. On the flip side, if you're very careful of the of the messaging that you surround yourself with, that sort of dictates what you end up getting. So you see very clearly these rabbis were, 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 were walking the walk in addition to talking the talk, that they actually spent the time to converse and to speak about going out of Egypt because it was important to them. Now, fascinatingly enough, just for anyone that would be, be interesting, it's kind of a side point, but really interesting to bring up. There's this famous, there's the famous rabbi, Rabbi Elizabeth Nazaria, who, who talks about, I, I, I'm, I'm like a man of 70 years old. So we know that the Talmud is talking about that there was a big turnover in the, uh, in the yeshiva, and they ousted the older rabbi, and they brought him in. They basically said, we want you to run the yeshiva. And he said, I'm a young guy. I think he was 30, something like that. Maybe, you know, he's younger. He's, he's 18, I think. And, um, and, and they, they thrust leadership upon him. And so the, the famous story is he went back and he asked his wife, what should I do? Now, growing up, hearing the story, now again, what do we know the outcome was? He, he ends up taking the position and his beard magically turns white. And that's why he says, I'm like a man that's 70 years old. Because he looks like a man that's 70 years old because there was like this miracle that happened that suddenly made him get a white beard, right? Okay, now this was probably before they could do the filters on Snapchat or whatever, so you could just get yourself a beard right now, but whatever it is. So. The fascinating thing was the Talmud says, the Talmud records this event. And what I never knew until I actually learned the Talmud was that the man goes back to his wife and he says, should I be, should I take on this position? And you would think if he took the position, what did his wife do? Said, great, do it, right? And it's a beautiful story of, uh, of, of Shalom Bayit, of, uh, of, of, of peace in the home. And what's really fascinating is that's not actually what happened. He goes home to the wife and he says to his wife, Honey, should I take this over? And what did she say back to him? She said, what are you going to take it over for? Just like they, they they busted out the last rabbi, you're next. You're on the chopping block. To which he said, probably for me, one of the moment, this was like one of the most amazing things that I've ever heard. He says that if there's a beautiful glass in my hand right now and they're going to shatter tomorrow, should I not drink from it? Which basically means you're right. You're very right. I might get booted out tomorrow. But right now this is here and this is for me to do it. I'm going to enjoy it. So I think that that's a fundamental a crucial Jewish concept here that one of the ways that we're supposed to live our life is looking at what's going on right now. And if you have a great opportunity right now, don't worry about it if everything's going to be going on tomorrow or what's going to happen tomorrow, frankly, because maybe it could go sideways, but at least you had today. And so often it's an amazing thing. We don't play our cards today because we're trying to set ourselves up for success tomorrow. And the reality is that it's never a way to play life because you'll always lose because you're always playing safe. Good. Moving forward. So it just explains back into the context of the Haggadah, this fascinating concept of Rabbi Lezer ben who says that now I see, based on how I learned this verse, that you always have to be thinking about coming out of Egypt, which again, as we discussed, what does that practically mean? It means that God is personally invested in your life, and the challenges that face you right now, those 
have no real um, 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 things that can hold you because God can always break through that and he can always liberate you. And it also means that you are always liberated from your past circumstances because God has already freed you spiritually. So those are the first two ideas about that. Now, what we're going to go into next is the very famous, again, a couple of points. There's another very famous quote. So before we go into the four sons, the famous four sons and the way they ask their questions and what does it mean, these four different sons, and what, how does the question indicate the character trait that the sons have, is the first piece is it, is it very famously says that God, we give the name God as the place. Again, it says, blessed is Hamakom. Now, Hamakom, what that actually means, the Hebrew word Makom means place. So it's interesting because a lot of times in Judaism, we call God different names. Now, it doesn't mean that there's a different God, as a lot of people might suggest, but it means that the way we relate to God is different depending on how we're relating to them. The famous example, a famous example, the example I always give is there's a, let's say there's a person. Now, depending on the relationship with that person, Let's say it's someone. It's, let's say it's it's me. So depending on who's talking to me, they're going to call me different names. My buddies, if they're being nice, will call me Jacob. They might call me other things, which I'm not going to talk about on here, right? They might call me Jacob. My wife might call me husband, or you know the equivalent, honey, or whatever. My kids might call me dad, Abba, whatever it is. So I stay the same, but be, because of the different relationships around me, I'll get different names. Now, again, not in any way comparing myself to God, but it's the same concept, right? That based on what we're calling God at a given time will give us the context for what the relationship is talking about. So fascinatingly enough, we start off the Haggadah by saying that God is the place. You think to yourself, that's a strange thing to call God. And where else does that name come up? What, one of the ways that one of the places it comes up is when a when a mourner when a person is mourning. So we use the same word. A per, there's a, there's a famous Jewish line where you would go and say to a, a person who's died. Uh, one more time, when you go say to the relatives of someone who's died, may God. But here we use the word the place hamakom, right? Comfort you and all the Jewish people. So why is that? What is that? What does that mean specifically? Is that it recontextualizes everything because in our lives practically speaking, we feel like at times we're lost and things are happening in our lives that are outside of the context and we don't know how to deal with it. And so the reason why we call God the place is we realize that everything is actually happening within him. And the same God that was there when everything was great is there for us when things go sideways. And so we never have to feel like something's popping up that's outside of our wheelhouse, which going back to a lot of the different ways of dealing with the current challenge that we're having is that if a person appreciates, right, if a person thinks, I've never had this situation before in my life and the world is completely upside down and we're never going to get out of this and, and we're terrified. So that brings a person to a despair and fear and making all kinds of bad, rash, stupid decisions. And rather a person says that even though I personally have never seen this, the same God that let the world happen before and after coronavirus is there and kind of dictating everything while coronavirus happens, you can sit back and relax and say, I'm going to show up the same way I did yesterday. Again, with, with you know, obviously being careful and then aware of your surroundings, I'm going to not go crazy because nothing really has changed so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, moving, moving on. So now we go to this concept of the four sons. Now, this is an absolutely fascinating component of Jewish thought and Jewish thinking because what happens is ultimately, first of all, it's interesting because we see that there's really a place around the table for everybody. And oftentimes we are so busy disqualifying ourselves. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm too busy for this, all that kind of stuff. And one of the concepts of the Haggadah is going back to the original thing that we spoke about, why you invite everyone 
when you're sitting down to a meal is that the Jewish people were taken out as a whole, which means that we have to basically respect and have appreciation for every single type of person. So it says, like, explicitly, you can't say that, that you don't belong here because really every single category, how you show up, belongs here, and it, you just have to learn how to make it relevant to you. So that's point number one of why you bring up the four sons. On top of it, what's really fascinating is that it makes a character judgment on the on the, on the the kid based on the question that the kid asks. So that's a very interesting thing because one of the concepts that we always say is, you know, like, there's no stupid questions, only stupid people, we, right? That certain idea that, like, there's never a bad question or there's never a question you shouldn't ask. But seemingly the Haggadah seems to argue on that because what is the Haggadah saying? Based on who you are, right, based on what you ask, that actually dictates who you are, which is a very, very deep idea. And and it, and it goes, it can really go deep, right? Because ultimately, we all sort of, how, at what point do you judge a person based on their actions or based on what they're putting out in the world? So we all want to be able to say, this is a good person, or, or I'm a good person, or, or, or she's a good person, or he's a good person. But then ultimately, do you ever look at what the person does and make an assessment and a judgment based on their, their actual actions? It's a very difficult thing. However, the Haggadah, for whatever reason, seems to be doing exactly that. So let's take a look. What does the wise son say? Now, how, do they, how do we know it's a wise son? We'll clearly have to look at his question because that's sort of the only way that we can, that we don't know him other than that. So we just see the question and then we, we infer from that that the, that, the, that, the, that the kid's wise. And it's a weird thing if you think about it because what's, what's the question? He asks all these specific laws. So the wise kid's asking all of these questions and you think to yourself, well, how do I define wisdom by that definition? Because I would think if I'm the wise guy in the room, famously, there's an amazing book I just finished uh, recently called... Uh, called uh, Little Stretchy Black Pants by a guy named Chip Wilson who built a small company called Lululemon. And one of the things he talks about in the book is that he would bring, he had this really revolutionary way of looking at retail and how he would build products and how he would sell products and all this kind of stuff. And as the company grew and went public, he used to, he would bring in all of the, what well, he didn't bring in, his board would bring in all of these advisors from other areas in business. And he would wind up paying a bunch of money to teach people his innovation, and then they would go out and teach his competitors the innovation, and then they would kind of screw up what he had. And so it's a fascinating concept that we sort of are looking for experts when maybe we are the actual experts. So interestingly enough, you would think to yourself, a wise person doesn't need to ask all of these questions because the wise person already knows all the answers. No. Judaism says it's opposite. The Haggadah says it's the, that it, no. That a wise person, by definition, is always fascinated by the search. They might have nothing, but but they're fascinated by the search. That's a very deep idea. Again, thinking about it for one second. I know I talk a lot because I get excited and that's just how it goes. But but, but we think for a second that I have to do a certain thing, be at a certain level, have a certain amount of information before I can earn the right of being called the person that knows something or a person that's wise. Not at all if you've ever studied the Haggadah because the Haggadah specifically says that the person who's wise is the one that is always asking questions. So you don't ever have to feel like I'm not qualified enough if you have the quality of being able to ask. So that's something that we try to nurture very deeply. So we say the reason why we call this kid wise is because the kid is asking all of the questions. So therefore, it's pretty easy to surmise that if we want to be considered a knowledgeable person, person, all we have to do is to adopt an, an environment and adopt a mindset where we are consistently questioning and asking more about the environment that we're in. And again, he's asking deep questions. He's ask, also asking very broad questions. Interestingly enough, he's also asking quite, now this is really deep if you want to see it. He asks 
questions that he might be able to have known already. Like he's quote, he asks questions that are like the question he asks are just like a verse in the Torah. Theoretically speaking, you think he would have read the Torah and he would know the answer to the questions, right? The answer is like, we are always on a process of learning, even if we already, so to speak, know the answers, even if we've seen it a thousand times, go back and learn and ask about fundamentals, drill the basics, because ultimately the greatness comes out once you know the basics inside and outside. Point number one. Now, fascinately enough, going to number two, and this is for me always my favorite, right, is the definition of what is a, of a Russia, of a wicked person. What does that mean? How, how can I, how do we define wickedness according to the Haggadah? So again, a lot of times people might think wickedness is action. Did I behave in a wicked fashion? And the Haggadah, the boy's doing nothing. He's sitting at his dad's table, right? He's just talking. He's asking questions. And the Haggadah is very harshly judging him and calling him a, a wicked person. So what is the question that the wicked person asks? Awkwardly, awkwardly, it's the same question that the wise kids ask. So oftentimes we think that wickedness is, and again, this is a very deep idea that if you have little kids at the table, don't go down this route. But if you have older kids at the table, you could bring up this route. We oftentimes like to think that people who are bad are acting out of a lack of knowledge, right? Famously speaking, again, this is just a fun thing to think about. I remember uh, in 2002, when there was a uh, uh, the intifada, the, the, the big battles, the, the wars that were going on in Israel between the Israelis and the, and the Palestinians, and, and, and that the Israeli government had adopted a policy of targeted assassinations. And again, not for now, the halachic morality of that, the questions about that, whatever it was, but it was well known that, you know, the way that Israel had adopted an aggressive stance toward wiping out terror was to go after the terror leaders, and no matter where they were, they would do it in all kinds of crazy ways. I don't know if they had drones back then, they probably did, but, you know, drones, assassinations, etc. And so one of the things that was shocking was when the head of Hamas at that time was killed, uh, was going through his background of what he had been. So a lot of times us sitting in the West like to think that people who are committing and perpetrating acts against, you know, Western targets, so to speak, or soft targets, so to speak, they're acting out of a lack of education. And the fascinating thing was, this guy was Western educated, and he had gone to the best colleges, and he was, you know, had, had did all these professional jobs. And if you look throughout a lot of history, you'll find that that people that we might necessarily call wicked, per se, again, I understand that that's a value judgment, and sometimes we have to do that, right? But people that we would call wicked, they're not stupid, and they're not uneducated, ever. Very, very rarely, right? Because that's just called being an ignoramus. Oftentimes, the people that are wicked, they, they did this amazing study where they found out that the average level of education for the, again, now there was World War II, right? There was a, there was the, the Germans, and the Germans had a a forward-facing army, right, which were just which were soldiers, and then they had what was called the Einsatzgruppen. I, I know I'm butchering that, but they had a group of other soldiers whose job was to follow behind the advancing army, and they would do the stuff that the Germans were really famous for, the really horrible stuff, which was, you know, like taking women and children and, and pregnant women naked out to a field and killing them. So what was the average level of education for the guys that did the second part? They weren't just the frontline soldiers, the guy that did the, the bad stuff, right? So the, the, the they came out that the average level of education was a graduate degree. Most of them had like the average mean, again, I'm not saying this, but the average, the average job was a dentist. Right. So we think 
what kind of a person would be able to go into uh, into a village and take a woman, a naked a naked pregnant woman, and take her out to a freezing field and kill her and all of her children? You think to yourself, a person that was never educated. And the answer is like, that's not it, man. That's for sure not it. These people are educated. Wickedness and education have nothing to do with each other. And interestingly enough, oftentimes the most wicked people are the most educated ones because information doesn't equal values. The more I know does not make me a good or a bad person, but rather it just kind of sets me in context. So fascinatingly enough, the wicked kid asks the exact same question that the wise kid does, but there's a slightly different inference. And this is fascinating because this slight difference ultimately is what defines for the Haggadah, right, what wicked is and what righteous is or what wise is. And again, it's it's interesting also because it's not like a, in our minds, it's not it's not opposite. The opposite of a, of, a, of a wise person is an unwise person, so to speak. The opposite of a wicked person is a good person. But here it sets up wise and then the next thing is wicked. So what is a wicked person? First of all, we see he asked the same question, but what he does is say that the over, oh, this is really, really profound, I think, and it's not me, it's just, a, it's, a, it's a deep idea to meditate on, but ultimately he says, and this is what the Haggadah says, is he says that, what, what did all this stuff happen to you, and, and not to me, right? He removes himself from the overall picture, from the overall message, right? And that's what we smack him with wicked. And you think to yourself, the kid says, I don't get how it's relevant to me. How in the world does that make this whole thing, how does that get him the terrible stamp of wicked? Right? So interestingly enough, perhaps we could suggest the following. The, the, the outcome, ultimately, of what we are trying to deliver on Pesach, of, of the idea that God took us out of Egypt, are a few different things. One of which is that you're free to make your own choices. And something else is that you're here on purpose for a reason with an important thing to go out and carry. So your life has meaning. Your life has importance. You can actually do something with your life. And, and you're not tied back to your circumstances. So interesting enough, if that's what we're going for, if a person says that itself, those concepts are not relevant to me, what is the natural outcome of that? What we would call wickedness, right? Because if a person feels my life doesn't matter, there's no bigger purpose to the world, that there's no real value to what I'm doing, all of a sudden you walk down this exceedingly dark road to everything being okay, to I'm being allowed to do whatever I want, that there's no bigger implications of what I do, and that's ultimately the field in which we find all of wickedness. Because ultimately, wickedness is forcing and fighting back against a moral order. And if the whole idea of Pesach is to serve as the foundation of the moral order by which the Torah could be given and therefore value and, and morals could be given to mankind, right, in a new new way. So if a person says, I'm out of that, so then by definition, the road to that is going to be eventually they're going to lead to evil. Shocking. Amazing. Then it goes back. What does the simple son say? So he's also asking essentially the same question. He says, what, what is this? What is it? Now, again, we say, again, I, I missed this one part. I missed this one part. It says in the response to the, to the, to the, uh, to, the to the, to the, to the wicked kid, we blunt his teeth. We knock his teeth out, which is a very strange thing. And we say to him, because this God, God did it for me. And had you been there, you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have been redeemed. So again, what does that, what does that mean? So what does it mean to knock out his teeth? So again, could mean that you have to respond to him very harshly. It could mean that you try to, temper what he's saying, right? To blunt the teeth. If the teeth are biting and they're hurting, you try to blunt them, right? You try to, you try to make what he's saying not as biting as it was. You try to win him back. You don't, you don't just let that sink in, so to speak. And then you respond back 
that this stuff is all relevant to me. And then you could say back the same thing is, but not to you. Because if you'd be there, you wouldn't stay in Egypt. So this is one of the, the for me, a, a fundamental thing I, th- I found was, was, was fascinating about uh, the Passover story is we know the Talmud explains that in the ninth plague, the ninth plague was the plague of darkness, right? In the plague of darkness, the mass majority of the Jewish people died which we don't know that. You probably didn't hear that one in Hebrew school, right? But the mass majority of the Jewish people died. So it's an interesting question. And the darkness, in a lot of ways, stopped the Egyptians from looking at the Jews and being like, well, they're all getting they're all getting punished also. So it's interesting what caused this mass plague to break out and kill all the Jews. So the interesting explanation I saw was that when a person, okay, what had happened by the ninth plague? The ninth plague, basically the Jews had witnessed that the entirety of Egypt had been turned over. And that really the way that they had been living that what you couldn't go back home. You couldn't go back home because home was no longer real. You've been living this illusion of you were crushed and you couldn't self-actualize and now we've broken that and now you have to go out of the womb and you have to go out on your own and you have to go into the into the desert, so to speak, and to go into a place where you're scared to go and all you've got to ride on is your faith and all you've got to ride on is this new relationship with God that's just been manifest itself in your own in, in life and experience. And for most people who had been living Without that, they couldn't do it. They didn't want to do it. To which point they said, okay, so to which point God said, you're not going to make it out because you don't have what it takes to survive. So that's a fascinating thing. It's the same thing we're saying, you're saying back to Wicked Son. It's just the fact. The fact is, if you wanted to say that the future is irrelevant to you, you would not have inherited the future. The future wouldn't have come to you because you didn't want to be a part of that. And ultimately, that's the deep, again, we're speaking about like very deep ideas here, that ultimately, if a person doesn't feel capable, qualified, willing, able to go out into the wilderness, to go out into a place where they don't have all of their stuff figured out, and to go make themselves uncomfortable, ultimately they will not inherit the future, they'll die in the present. And that's where they'll stay. Because there's no life after that, because life is scary and life is unknown. Wow, great, keep going, right? So now we go to the the, the simple son. What does the simple son talk about? The simple son says, what is this? And you say, with a strong hand, God took us out of Egypt, the house of bondage. So then, what what is the answer to that? Basic. So basic, but so we have such a hard time with that, is that ultimately, when it comes to effective communication, we have to learn to talk to people where they are. And when we sit down with someone, the the natural, the most fundamental human experience is, I'm going to talk to you about what matters to me. I'm going to talk to you in a language that I understand. I'm going to talk because I need to talk, not because you need to hear it or because you can hear it. And the fascinating thing the Balagada is telling us is you can't do that because you have to answer in a language, in a method, in a manner that the person that's asking the question is there for. Do you communicate for you or do you communicate for them? And ultimately, what we have to try to do is to grow ourselves into people that can communicate to them, that we are here to serve others and talk in a language that others can understand, not just blab from the mouth all the time, and that's what we, we, we're trying to do. So now, those are wise, wicked, simple. Finally, the one says that the son that doesn't know how to ask, you must open the dialogue for him, as the Torah says, you shall tell your son on that day. Now again, that means that ultimately, education must be, should be proactive. It's not just Again, this is such a, 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 a I, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just go slightly on a, on, a, on a tangent, but I think it's, it's, it's exceedingly relevant, is that there was a, a person 
that I was speaking to uh, in the course of a, it was a coaching conversation, and this person was interested in building uh, in building his or her business. And one of the components I, I had the opportunity to share with this person was a lesson that I learned from a mentor of mine, who was basically saying that a lot of, if you have, a, you have a fisherman, a fisherman sits in the boat, and in order to get the fish, you have to put your hook in the water. Now, there's all kinds of processes and steps around getting on the boat, getting the, the I'm not a fisherman, but you know, theoretically speaking, getting the bait on the line and getting the line in the water. But you really can only expect to catch the fish once you're actually fishing. And so many of us spend the time trying to bait the, bait the line, get on the lake, that we feel like that's doing stuff. And to a certain extent, it is doing stuff, but it's only doing stuff if you put, your, you put the line in the water. And you can only really judge your success based on how long you had your line in the water because that's actively going after the fish. Again, we're not just talking about how to how to prospect, how to sell, etc. But the concept is that you have to look at what you're doing and not be um, uh, not proactive. The uh, the opposite of that, you have to be proactive. So even if you, if your goal is to give over to your children the essence of the seder, and you see the kids not asking questions, it's not to say, well, okay, I'm only talking to people that are asking questions, right? You have to put your line in the water, and you have to realize I have to be proactive to create this educational opportunity for my kids, not not the other way around. Shoo. Now, one other thing that I found which was unbelievably valuable to me was this concept that there are four sons. So this I heard initially from Rav Moshe Feinstein, but, but I think it's very relevant and, and it's very relevant and we have to think about it, which is basically that there are four kids here. The four kids represent four generations that the Jewish people and really that most people I would say go through. The first one is the wise and the, the kid that's that's in it. The second one is the rebellious one, the one that says, I saw what my forefathers did and I don't want to do it. The third is the simple one who saw his his grandfather being the, 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 the pious one, his father being the rebellious one, and he sees, okay, it is what it is. And then there's the fourth kid who says, you know, I don't really know once upon a time ago I was Jewish and and I'm not really sure what that means. There's no fifth son because the fifth son is at that watershed moment where either the fifth kid is not at the table because he's no longer, he's completely renounced his connection to Judaism. He just doesn't get it. He's lost. He's gone without being able to have the ability to make an educated decision or he's become the wise kid again because he started asking questions and now he's back in the line. So the fascinating thing for us and, and for our children and for the, the entire state of the Jewish people is trying to figure out we don't have an endless timeline. There's not an endless, you know, just like ongoing thing where people are always going to be connected to our heritage. And that if people are giving up Judaism, not because they don't want it, but people are giving up Judaism, frankly, because they just don't know enough, that's our obligation to say, well, you're not going to be there. I need to, I need to provide you the information so that you can can have make an educated choice. If you want off, you want off. Okay, yeah, it's your life, your freedom, whatever you want. But I at least want to give you the education because if we just don't start that conversation with someone, then that person's gonna by by definition is just gonna be gonna be lost, and that's a tragedy. Shoo. Okay, great. That's that. That's the four sons in thirty minutes. Okay, hopefully that was uh, beneficial. I, I I'm I'm very afraid to think for a second that I'm gonna attempt the next two paragraphs in ten minutes which is the time that I allocated for this, but I'm, I'm going to go for it. Then the next time we'll actually get to the four paragraphs. Okay, it says, you might think, one might think, you might think, the obligation to talk about it starts on the first of Nisan. Therefore, it's supposed to say on this day. You think on this day, you have to do it at night. Okay, it gives all of these times when halakhically it's breaking you down to you are supposed to be exactly where you are at this time, which means the following, that a person 
needs to find the proper contextual time to do everything, right? So what we're doing when we sit down to the Seder is we keep saying, again, it's famous and now, you know, thank God we, uh, well, it's on hold for now, but but one of the uh, one of the most famous or perhaps the most famous uh, sports broadcaster now is, is our dear friend Bruce Buffer, uh, who, who calls the, uh, the major UFC fights and the famous line that we all talk about, it's time for the main event, right? Which helps you appreciate that right now, is when the main thing's happening. Why do we say, of course it's time. It's like one of these crazy statements that like, you know, like, like what else do I come? I know there's gonna be a fight. I pay a lot of money to come to the fight. I pay a lot of money to watch it on, on, on pay-per-view. Why do I need some dude to, so to speak, get up and tell me it's the time? Like, I knew the two main fighters. That's probably why I bought the ticket. And I knew that all the other fights up until this time were not the main fighters. So why do I need someone to come and say, now it's time, it's, it's time for the main event? So the answer is that we, we, we can't allow ourselves to go on autopilot, that the human mind needs to create excitement. And the major way of creating excitement is to allow a person to see the opportunity that's sitting in front of them. And so now that's again, why, why does the UFC pay Bruce Buffer all this money to come out and announce that it's time, something that's completely obvious? And why is it like everyone gets really fired up when he does it because we've been waiting for such a long time to do this and now that time is here and you can't just let that go by you have to stop and you have to appreciate now I'm about to do it and again there's an idea Hasidic there's a, a, a tradition that Jews sometimes before they even start a mitzvah they'll stop and they'll say I'm now about to do this mitzvah. It's this intentional thing. And again, you think that's a Jewish thing? It's not a Jewish thing. It's a mindset thing. It's a, it's a, it's a being present in the moment. And you need to take the time to appreciate what's going on in front of you. Excellent. Then you're going to say in the beginning. Finally, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm get, I, I, you know what? Okay, we're going to go a little bit more. It says, in the beginning, our fathers were idol worshipers. But now the makom, again, that same thing that we discussed earlier, has brought us near his service as it is written. And it, and it gives us a verse. And, and it says that we, you know, tear off the father of Avram and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods, but I took Avraham across the river and had him walk the entire land of Canaan, and I multiplied his seed, I gave him Yitzhak, and Yitzhak I gave Yaakov and Esau, and Esau gave Mount Seir, and you, your descendants, uh, Yaakov's descendants, I brought you guys down to Egypt. So that's fascinating, because a couple of questions. First of all, why do we start the whole discussion of the Seder by talking about the fact that we are idol worshipers? So that's a very deep idea, because oftentimes, the Seder night, again, like we said, we're sitting in, and this is like a very deep thing that we that we have to think about. We, we, we're sitting at the Seder table, and we have it all nice, and we have our friends around us, or our family around us this year, and we have all the, 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 the vessels that are all nice and beautiful, and we're sitting in a nice suit with a nice tie, and we're, and we're having a wonderful time, and we think to ourselves, ah, it's great to be Jewish, it's great to be free, look at all the great things we did. And the fascinating thing is, it's not true. Because if you look, you have a tendency, if you sit back and you're so focused on how great it is now, if you don't appreciate where you came from, you have this tendency to grow a big head and you miss the whole perspective. The whole perspective is not that you're excellent, the whole perspective is that you were nothing and now you're something. Because if you have that perception and that understanding that initially you are no better than anybody else and that God himself cares about you enough to elevate you and to lift you up and to fix you, so suddenly you're gonna look around and say, I'm not sitting back on my laurels, right? there's a certain level, and it's a very deep idea, you know, if you look, the, there's a certain work ethic that we speak about, that someone who either came from no money, or someone that comes from terrible ad, 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 adversity, or someone that comes from a different country, and they come here and they work their rear end off to make it for their kids, right? They have a certain perspective and appreciation for where they came. Again, famous song, not Jewish, but he's Jewish. Drake speaks about, we started from the bottom, now we're here. Why is that important? We could just say we're here, right? In fact, that's what the Haggadah 
process, right? We're now we're here and next year, right? So it's interesting. Like we're here. But the fascinating thing is if you don't appreciate where you come from, if you don't appreciate not just where you personally come from, but the unbelievable depths that your forefathers came from, and God took himself and he involved himself in your life and he cares about you that much and he'll pull you up. So A, that's a tremendous amount of of, of what we call hizuk, of, of elevation, of inspiration, because we oftentimes think we're so gone, we're so lost, we're so pathetic, we're so missing. And the answer is like, you know what? You're not so bad. And if you think about it, your great grandparents were much, much worse, right? Your great grandparents were, were idol worshippers, man. You had no connection whatsoever. So here you think you failed a couple of times. You, you didn't speak nicely to your spouse. And maybe you woke up a little bit late. And maybe you did a couple other terrible things. You, the, you're, you come from people that were wallowing in filth. And even those people that were wallowing in filth, God loved them and built them up. Now, fastly enough, so you should say, ah, it's never too late for me. I'm always going to have this amazing opportunity. And I should always have this tremendous appreciation to God who made me who I am today and helped me become who I am today. And I'm never going to screw up so bad and get so messed up that I can't find my way back. That's point number one. But then what comes after that? What comes after that is a, a lesson in history, which you think to yourself, why am I getting a history lesson after that beautiful, uh, inspiring lesson? So what's the history lesson you get? Basically, that there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Esau. And Esau, who we look at as a as a as a not such a great person in the eyes of the Torah, right? Esau, he gets Mount Seir. He's good. He gets his inheritance. He's good. He's good to chill out for all of eternity. But what do we get? The people that we get so inspired and so happy and so thrilled that God would save us and take us and build us up and choose us and draw us close, we get to go to Egypt. So now, again, that whole thing now is the is we're building context because what's the context? The context is that our suffering is a product of God's love for us. Our, our, our process, the pain, the horrible experience that we're about to undertake, that we undertake in our lives, it's building us, which is this whole idea, which again, you think to yourself, you know, the greatest selling, not greatest selling, but one of the greatest selling books is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. We waited to the, to the 1950s for this Jewish psychologist to have this horrible experience in the concentration camps to unleash upon this world this beautiful idea that at the end of the day we control our response. The way that we think about something is how we frame it in our mind. And that no matter what terrible things happen to us, if we have a certain mindset, we can constructualize the, the, the thing that they never can take, they, whoever it is, the, the they, the they of the world can never take away from us is our ability to frame events. And you're like, great, that's a really cool, very deep, very relevant lesson happens to be the Haggadah beat you by about about fifteen hundred years, or 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 maybe more. Right? That's not that's not Viktor Frankl's idea. That was the experience that his life educated him to. But that's the idea here: is that all of our suffering, our our the, the trauma of Egypt, the experience of going into that and being there for two hundred years. Right? That experience was because of God's love for us, because he was building us into something. And practically speaking, I don't think I don't need to necessarily connect the dots for you, but as we go through all of the stuff in our life, the difficulties, the struggles, the fear, the pain, so you could look at it and you can say, God hates me, he's lost, I'm gone, I'm nothing, all of this stuff is falling upon me. And the answer is like, no, it's not, man. The fact that you're struggling, the fact there are all these things in your life, that's where your greatest opportunity is. And if you plug into that and you think God's doing this not not to me, again famously, not to me, but for me, to build me, to make me into a better person, even though it feels like you're getting punched in the face over and over and over again, that mentality allows you to open yourself up to see the possibility of your own circumstances. And with that, I want to end off this particular piece, um, our number two into, and we haven't really gotten the main story yet, but a bunch of deep things that we can hopefully sit and think about uh, as we go through the Seder. We're going to bump on later this week for part three. And I, I from the bottom of my heart, appreciate you watching. Thank 
thank you so much for your support. And uh, thanks for being there, Aish Live and all of my Facebook people that have been watching. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.